0: It was interesting last yesterday as I was um, working on uh, I think it was Mark chapter six. Um, one of the things that Mark does, and we kind of spelled this out in his introduction, is that he's not quite so interested in chronology, meaning the timing of certain things, as he is grouping events from Jesus' life by um, thematic elements. In other words, he takes certain things that happened and he groups them together because he's going to use those groupings to actually... Um teach us something about Christ or about the kingdom of God. And so we've seen how he's already done that a little bit when you look at his prologue where he took the baptism of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist and he put them together into a section. And he used that to show that Jesus is Messiah and the Son of God. We saw that kind of last week. And he's going to do that throughout his book where he groups things into sections for us based on thematic um, elements. And today he does that as well. He's going to group... Um, I think it's four or five different things here. Um, and they all have one thing in common, opposition to Jesus. And he's going to use that as part of his proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God. Because that's one aspect of who Christ is. And so he's going to take this uh, these elements of opposition and use it to help us to understand that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Look at chapter 2. We're going to read the first two verses, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, but even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So we see a couple of things here. First off, it says that he was at home. That suggests that they were gathering in a house. Some have argued that this may well have been Peter's house that Jesus had come back and was now in Peter's home. It's possible that um, it was the house that Jesus lived in. His home city became Capernaum. And so that's where he's actually at at this point. We're not real sure, but they were meeting in a home. Luke says that the crowd was um, quite large, saying that people from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem had come up to this. So they had heard about Jesus' ministry, and so people from all over Israel had come and have met him in the home here at this point. So we don't know how big the house was. Um, we don't know how big the crowd was. It's just that we know that it was a large crowd and they were packed to the gills. In fact, there was no more room and we'll see that in a second here. We also see that Jesus was doing something that was his regular practice. It says here that he was preaching the word to them. Preaching the word to them. We saw that he actually, I don't think we've covered it yet, we will when he goes to Nazareth here, but there's a scene where Jesus is at Nazareth, he was in the synagogue, and it says that he stood up and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, if I remember correctly, and he basically sat down and said, it's been fulfilled in your presence today. Jesus had a habit of using the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to teach, to proclaim who he was, and so here, he's doing the same thing. In all likelihood, he's going through the test, the Old Testament with them and demonstrating God's plan and purpose for mankind, his redemptive plan, and how it relates to him to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. And so he's doing that in this home. And we know also that there are scribes and Pharisees as well within this group. It's not just, I'll say, common folks. So what happens? Well, about this time as he's teaching, some men come to the house with a paralyzed man who couldn't walk. Look at verses 3 and following. It says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Basically what they have is a man who's probably on a pallet of some kind, and he's being carried with a man on each corner of the pallet. For being unable to get to him, meaning Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug a hole, or dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what we basically have are these four men show up with this paralytic, a guy who cannot walk. He's on a pallet. They can't get in the front door. So they do something rather remarkable. Now the homes in this time had flat roofs, and usually the roof was used for storing things, it was also oftentimes a work area, but it was flat, and to get to the roof, usually there was a staircase outside of the house, and so these men find the staircase, they will go up to the top, and then they dig a hole, now the roofs were generally made of fairly heavy beams that were then laid with a thatch, or basically branches, and then packed with mud, they'd be quite thick, And I love the details here because Mark describes that they actually had to dig an opening. This was work. This wasn't just something simple, you know, simple, get up there and remove a couple of shingles. They had to cut a hole or dig a fairly large hole to get a man on a pallet dropped down. And when you think about it, they probably couldn't, the pallet probably wasn't much wider than that, but do you think they could have tipped it up and dropped him down? No, they're going to have to lay him down flat, which means this was probably a fairly significant job, a large hole where they would be able to lower the man down. And you think about it, that would mean the hole probably, if I'm normal size, this hole probably had to be about six feet round. This was a big job. This is probably why Jesus refers to it as faith. Because this wasn't just something, like, well, how do we get him in there? That would be easy. No, they, they went through some tremendous effort to get this man down. And they apparently lowered this man down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Jesus is in there teaching. It's probably warm. It's a little bit dark, you know. They didn't have light switches like we do today, probably lit up by candles. And while Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden a couple of heads start looking up going, what, what? And there's probably the noise from digging the hole, you know. There's probably dirt coming down. And next thing you know, this man's floating down from the ceiling on a pallet. Comes right down in front of Jesus as he's sitting there. I mean, these guys had to be doing their math too, because to figure out where to calculate a hole, so they'd come down where Jesus was. They don't want to end up dropping them down to the back where the bathroom is, because then they can't get to Jesus anyway, right? So they did their work. Jesus sees it, refers to it as faith. But there's a rather remarkable response that Jesus gives. Look at what happens. As this man comes down, Jesus looks at the men and he sees their faith, it says. Their faith, obviously, that Jesus obviously healed. They expected him to be able to do something. They would not have gone through all this work if they simply wanted Jesus' blessing. So they fully expected that Jesus would be able to heal this man and he would walk out and not have to go back up through the ceiling. And so Jesus sees that and he looks at the man and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Why didn't he say, get up and walk? Why say your sins are forgiven? Well, the Pharisees wondered the same thing. It says in verse 6, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's a blaspheme? What does that mean to blaspheme? Do you remember? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't refer just to God, necessarily. If I blaspheme you, it means I say something that's untrue about you. And so they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, w- what did he just do? Did he really do what we think he did? He just forgave this man's sins. What gives him the right to do that? Because only God can forgive sins. Now, what's interesting about that is they were right if Jesus wasn't who we know him to be. So theologically, they were they were dead on. The problem wasn't their theology. What I love about this is as they're sitting there reasoning in their hearts, it says, wondering, how could he do this? They didn't say anything out loud. Verse 8 immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, Jesus read their minds. He knew what was in their hearts. They didn't have to say a word. So Jesus turns and he looks at them and he says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Now that seems like a rather interesting statement. As we look at it, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I would look at that and say, well actually neither one of them are any easier to say than the other. Would you agree? So it seems like a rather interesting statement. Which is easier to say? Well, he tells us what his real objective is here because the very next sentence is what we call a purpose clause. Verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus says, If I'm going to convince you Pharisees and you scribes that I have the authority to forgive sins on earth, which is only something that God himself can do, Therefore, proving that I am who I say I am. What's the easiest way I can do that? To say, get up and walk, and then you guys got to figure out that I am who I say I am? Or if I come right out and say, your sins are forgiven? Well, when you think about it from that perspective, that is the easiest thing to say. Jesus gets right to the point. He wants these scribes and these Pharisees to know He is God. And the easiest way to do that is... Not to look and say, well, get up and walk and then let them guess, but rather to say, your sins are forgiven. And the proof that he has the authority to forgive sins is when the man then gets up and walks away. So that's really the context of the statement, what's easier to say. It's easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven when he's simply trying to show that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so that's what he did. Now, obviously, the Pharisees weren't... Too crazy about that. We know that later because they continue to oppose him. So what happens to this man? It says in verse eleven then, or verses ten through eleven. Says, I say to you, so now he turns his attention to the paralytic who's probably still sitting there on this pallet wondering, you know, he's now caught in the conversation, you know, because he came there to be healed. The Pharisees are obviously objecting, and Jesus tells him get up and walk, and then all of a sudden he knows that the Pharisees are or he says, your sins are forgiven. I would imagine that the paralytic probably was a little confused by that. He probably expected Jesus to say, you're healed, walk. Instead, he's told, your sins are forgiven. So he's a little perplexed. But then the conversation immediately turns to the Pharisees. Now he's sitting there on the pallet, kind of looking, he hadn't gotten up and walked yet. Probably, again, a little bit perplexed. What does this mean? My sins, I didn't come here for my sins. I came here to walk. So Jesus finally looks at him and says, get up and walk. Take your pallet, go home. So what does a man do? It says, verse 12, He got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. It's interesting here that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in verse 10. While we may look at that and assume that Jesus is using that to refer to his humanity it's actually a reference to his deity it comes from Daniel chapter 7 son of man is actually a statement identifying Jesus as the son of God not the son of man kind of strange a little backwards but it's because he's looking back to Daniel chapter 7 where the son of man is a clear reference to God coming in the flesh and so what Jesus has just done here is he said look I have just forgiven this man's sin to prove that I am the Son of Man, that Daniel prophesied. I am the Son of God. That's part of Mark's purpose in sharing this story with us today. But we can see immediately that he faces opposition from these Pharisees. As these Pharisees are kind of looking at him, you would think that they would probably be going, This guy just read our mind. He knew exactly what we were thinking without even us saying a word. And he healed this man. He just got up and walked away. You would think that the Pharisees immediately would begin to realize, wow, there's something special about this guy. But we know that that didn't happen. That instead, they were intent on actually going out and now killing him because they saw him as a blasphemer. They were willing to disregard completely the evidence that they saw before them and instead live off their religious heritage and their arrogance and their pride and live in opposition to Jesus. And so we see the first example or the first episode that Mark provides to us here is he shows us that Jesus was going to face opposition from the religious leaders. He gives us a second example of that in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And he went out and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees or the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, "Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners?" And hearing this, Jesus said to them, "It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the second episode. Obviously, Jesus meets Levi. We know him to be Matthew. He's a tax collector. Meets him along the way, and Jesus says, Come, follow me. He invites him to be part of his inner circle, which means one of his closest associates. (coughs) Obviously, the Pharisees don't like him. The reason was that Matthew was a tax collector. Mark goes as far as to say tax collectors and sinners because he's trying to identify them as the riffraff of society, culture. Tax collectors were agents of Rome and the system of tax collection was often abused by them. The way they made their money was they would overtax people because Rome said you gotta collect this much tax, the tax collectors would go out and collect significantly more because they got to keep whatever extra they collected. So they were despised among the people. They were not good people. Gee, kind of almost like our IRS, Dave. <laughs> You know? Not good people. And yet, that's who Jesus is associating with. And he goes to Matthew's house where Matthew is throwing a party with a bunch of his tax collector and sinful friends. In fact, it was probably all tax collectors. I would imagine Matthew didn't have a whole lot of friends that were not tax collectors and sinners because nobody would associate with them. They were considered worthless. And they were treated as outcasts. But you notice too that in verse 15 it says that many of these people were following Jesus already. Jesus had attracted the riffraff. He had attracted the sinners. He had attracted the tax collectors. And for that reason, we see the scribes of the Pharisees wondering how in the world he can do that. Why is he eating and drinking with these people? The Pharisees had a problem with this, obviously. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18, give you an idea of how the scribes and the Pharisees looked at these tax collectors. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 10. We'll start at verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he's talking about self-righteous people who judged other people with contempt looked down upon them. So he says this, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to him or praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers and even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees couldn't stand the tax collectors because the Pharisees were self-righteous, they were pompous, they were arrogant, and they were judgmental. And so there's no no surprise that when Jesus is seen eating with these people, that the Pharisees have a problem with it. So not only were they opposed to Jesus because he claimed to have authority to forgive sins, but they also opposed Jesus because they did not like the people that Jesus hung out with, the people that Jesus ministered with. You see Jesus' response there in verse 17. I didn't come to those who were healthy. I came to those who need a physician. You go to a doctor when you're sick, not when you're healthy, right? And Jesus said, it's for these people that I came. It shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't surprise you. Pharisees, on the other hand, were only interested and willing to minister to those who really didn't need it. Only those that fit in their social network or those that could benefit them, or those that were just like them. But that's not why God called them. The elders of Israel were supposed to serve the people. These Pharisees had established themselves as sort of the cream of the crop. The, it was all about them. They were, In fact, Pharisees were generally wealthy, as were the scribes. It's all about them. You know, I think about this, I kind of reflect about the kind of people that God has worked with in the past. (coughs) Anybody remember who Abraham was? He was Abram, but, but anybody remember what his background was before God called him? Yeah, he was a pagan. Worshipped pagan gods. Yet God reached down and called him. What about Jonah? Steve did a great series on Jonah a while back. What do we know about Jonah? He was rebellious, didn't want to obey... Hated the others that didn't love God, supposedly. And God gave him ample opportunity to serve him. But what did Jonah do? He ran away anyway. He argued with God. Even when God supposedly taught him a lesson, he's sitting next to this plant. God raises up a plant to give him shade. And Jonah even complains further. But yet, God chose Jonah. What about Moses? Everybody remember Moses? Um, Moses came from kind of an Egyptian background. He was Jewish, obviously. But... Um, Moses wasn't perfect. Remember, Moses didn't even get to enter the promised land because of his disobedience. But yet God chose him and used him, and he's referred to as a righteous man. What about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? Any problems with those dudes? (laughs) There's plenty, you know. Anybody remember David? A man after God's own heart, and yet he was a murderer and an adulterer. How about Elijah? Great prophet Elijah. Remember there was a time where Elijah ran away and hid hit himself and he was just whining. Woe is me God, woe is me. In other words, you know, you're not doing enough God and God had to remind him, look, you're not alone. I got my prophets. Get out there and do your job Elijah. What about Peter? Peter denied Christ. What about Paul? Do you remember what Paul's background was? He's one of these dudes. In fact, Paul was associates with these same folks. We don't know that Paul was here, I doubt it. But Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was probably part of what's called the Sanhedrin, the top 70 dudes that led Israel. Educated in the best schools, he was pompous, he was arrogant. In fact, we remember, he was at the stoning of Stephen. He went out and persecuted Christians, found them for the sole purpose of arresting them and killing them, and as they sat there and stoned Stephen to death, Paul simply sat there and held out of their coats because he wasn't man enough, if you will, to do the work himself. He couldn't possibly get his hands dirty, so he had others kill Stephen. And yet, a short time later, what did God do with Saul? Jesus said, I came for those who are sick, not those who are healthy. I even think about James. One of my favorite books is the book of James, brother of Christ. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, James rejected him. At one point calls him out, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and build yourself a big following? That's really what this is all about, Jesus. And yet he became a leader at Jerusalem because after Christ's ascension, God called James. That's the kind of people that God calls. That's the kind of people God came to. And so Jesus, as he's looking at these pompous Pharisees and scribes, he says, I didn't come because of you people, you healthy people, if you will. I mean, they were just as sick, but the point he's trying to make is, I came for the sinners. I'm a doctor to them because they need somebody to heal them. But the Pharisees couldn't stand it, and so they were in opposition to him. There's a third example, third episode that Mark gives us here. And that's that they oppose Jesus over their religious traditions. Look at uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Let's see how much I'm going to read of this. We'll go down to verse 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results." No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So we now have Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders over their traditions. In the Old Testament, the only command to fast was to fast one day a year. It was on something called the Day of Atonement. It was a day of cleansing from sin. You find that in Exodus chapter 20. So really the law was you only had to fast one day a year. That was it. But the Pharisees fasted at least twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And they expected that of others as well. Somehow they came up with this religious rule on their own that God wanted them to fast more often than what God actually said. So God tells them one thing and they extrapolate and come up with all kinds of rules in fact they had a whole list of rules and regulations a whole additional book that cataloged all of the extra things you need to do you know um one of their traditions came to the way they washed their hands, and it wasn't just wash your hands, it was you had to wash them a certain way, and the way they washed them was to put the water on it and then raise their hands up because the water had to run down a certain way and for a certain amount of time, and there was this big elaborate process, and somehow that became law. And so they had their own book of rules and laws, their own traditions, and as they were watching here, they noticed that Jesus' disciples didn't follow those rules. And it offended them. So, Jesus actually gives them three illustrations revealing the folly of clinging to their man made religious traditions in light of Christ being here. First one he gives is that of the bridegroom. Weddings were supposed to be a time of feasting and celebration, which means it was inappropriate for the attendants to fast. Can you imagine that? You know, you're supposed to be celebrating a big feast, all of that, the bridegroom's there, everybody's celebrating, and that guy comes in and says, no, I'm just going to fast, which is a time of mourning and repentance. and It's totally out of place, is it not? He's supposed to be celebrating with the bridegroom. Well, in this case, obviously, the bridegroom is a representation of Christ. And so, what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is that, why would you fast at a time like this? Fasting is for a time of, of mourning and repentance. and It's not the Day of Atonement. Once you realize Messiah is here, God in the flesh is here, why wouldn't you be celebrating at this time, just like a marriage feast? Why would you fast at a time like this? The second two illustrations, the worn-out garments and the old wineskins, reveal that you can't mix the old and the new. That's That's the point. You can't mix the old religious traditions of the Pharisees in this new era of Christ. They don't coexist. They don't fit. So one of them is using a piece of cloth to patch an old garment. Which ends up making the tear worse because the new patch will start to shrink. And what happens when that new patch that you put on old garments starts to shrink? It shrinks, it's going to tear, it destroys the new garment. If anything, you would use an old patch on an old pair of jeans. So Jesus says, you can't put an old patch, or a new patch, or I'm sorry, an old patch, you can't take that and put that onto a garment because it destroys the garment. You can't take your traditions and overlay those onto this new era of Christ without destroying it. Basically, you can't take your old religious traditions and still cling to them. It talks about putting new wine into old wineskins. Obviously, if you fill up old wineskins which are stretched and somewhat fragile, you put brand new wine in and you fill it all the way up, it's going to burst those wineskins. So the whole point of what Jesus is saying here is You've got these traditions. You cannot impose those old traditions, man-made traditions. Jesus came to reveal, if you will, a new way. In fact, remember how Jesus summarized the Old Testament? Jesus' summary of what it took to please God was to love God and to love others. He, in some respects, suspended, if you will, many of the Old Testament laws. But he wasn't addressing that so much as he was all the traditions that they added on top of those laws. Do you think we have something like that in the church today? Do you think that we get caught up sometimes in church today with our traditions? Do you think we ever look at other people and think, well, they're not very good Christians because they don't do A, B, or C? When if you really looked at it, A, B, and C really are more our Christian traditions that you don't find much support for in the scriptures? I think I've shared this story before. I grew up with a young man on the swim team and he dated my sister for a number of years and he came from a um, Baptist family. Um, he became very, very soured on it. He, to this day, he's not saved. I saw him actually at my dad's funeral. He came and we talked for a bit. Um, and I asked him outright. I said, man, you know, you grew up in a, in a supposedly Christian home, Baptist home, going to church every Sunday. You're more of an agnostic now. You don't have any interest. Why is that? And he said, well, he said, because of the hypocrisy. They had these rules, he said. For instance, they could never go to a movie theater. But yet they could watch those same movies in, the, in their home. And that bothered him. But see, in, in the tradition he was a part of, going to movies at a movie theater presented the wrong impression but you could do those very same things at home it was the same thing with with alcohol god forbid that they ever drank alcohol out but his parents would drink it at home and he went through and cataloged a number of these things a number of these behaviors that were all sort of outward focused they were all designed to make you look religious they were these rules man-made things but they were just that they were man-made things Sometimes we get caught up with that in the church, where we teach and prescribe our own traditions, and we don't really stop and say, "But yeah, you know, what does the Bible really, really say?" Now, obviously, we have rules and things like that for a reason. You know, you have rules in your family, right? You know, we don't do A, B, or C because they help us to walk in alignment with Christ and His teaching. So I'm not saying that, but we have a tendency sometimes to set up man-made rules and regulations as to what we think make us holy and make us righteous. And those are an offense to God. They stand in the way. When we teach those rules and regulations, it doesn't lead people to Christ, it leads them further away from Christ. Which is why I have tried in my life, when I get confronted by things that I teach, or things that I believe, I've always tried to ask folks, well, can you take us to a passage of Scripture, and can we go through that, so that you can show me what the Scriptures say, because I don't want to argue over personal beliefs. I don't mind sharing a personal belief. But... I I want to debate what's here. And so what Jesus is doing with these religious leaders here is he's basically saying your traditions don't work. It's not what this is about. But they were opposed to him because he didn't abide by their traditions. Jesus wasn't interested in abiding by their traditions because it led no one to Christ. In fact, it pushed people further away. And this was a great example. The Pharisees had seen Jesus heal. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him cast out demons. And what's their concern? Your disciples aren't washing their hands according to our traditions. You would think you'd be amazed and want to know more about how this dude is healing. But your focus is on, uh, I don't like the way he wears his pants. I don't like the style of shirt he's wearing on because we don't wear that kind of, no, that we don't do logo shirts in our church. Whatever it is. You know, and I'll be real frank. You know, I have certain things that I appreciate about church. You know, I don't like to see people show up in church looking worse than they do on their worst day in the middle of the week. You know, I don't like seeing people walk in wearing flip-flops and a logo T-shirt that's torn and raggedy pants. And I'm like, and yet you show up for work every day and you're wearing a suit and tie. The least you can do is put on a nice pair of shorts and you walk into church. Now it's just a personal conviction I have. Are they sinning? No. I just personally myself wouldn't do it. You know? I dress for church like I dress for work. (coughs) Just because I kind of feel like, all right, I don't go to work looking like, you know, my worst clothes. Why would I show up at church wearing my worst clothes? It's not a sin issue for me. It's just a preference. But I can't teach that. I can't come here and reprimand you folks for showing up any way you want to show up. But I'll be real frank. That's a temptation sometimes, isn't it, for us? So I know the Pharisees, what they were doing, but they got it wrong. And so they were opposed to Jesus because he didn't live by their traditions. He didn't teach what they wanted him to teach. Let's move on to... I think that's our last one here. Yep. Mark is going to mention two final events. And I'm going to group those together as a final opposition, if you will. Because they're they're related to one another. Jesus was opposed over the real purpose for the Sabbath. And I think this is an important one. So the Pharisees were... Opposed to Jesus over their religious traditions and over his authority to forgive sins and over his association with sinners, but they were also opposed to him because they didn't like the way that he treated the Sabbath. The fourth one, if you will, the um, fourth event, is found in verses 22 and following. I'm sorry, verse 23 and following. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along with, while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they've got a problem with what Jesus' disciples are doing. They're walking through a field, they're hungry, so they reach out, they grab some grain off of the, the plants, and they eat it. Now why was this a problem for the Pharisees? Well, the Old Testament clearly prohibited working on the Sabbath didn't spell out what that meant. It just said, don't work on the Sabbath. It was clearly, however, as you look at the Old Testament, clearly a way to teach teach two things. One is the need to rest and trust God. The second was um, to basically... Or I'm sorry, one, one was to, to teach them to rest. The second was to teach them to trust God. So God takes and sets aside one day of the week and says, you won't work. You'll work six, you rest on the seventh. Okay? It was clearly focused on the idea of um, profit, if you will. Meaning, you don't have to be constantly pursuing that. You don't have to constantly be in business, if you will. You don't have to constantly be trying to generate revenue. There's a time where you simply relax, you rest, you worship the Lord. Take one day to do that. But the Pharisees looked at that and said, we can't work. Okay, And they started coming up with these rules as to what it means to work. And they started doing things like, well, you know what, that guy that's, that, that can't really can't really walk too well, so he spends most of his day on a pallet, he can't pick up that pallet and take it three feet if he wants to move. He has to just stay there all day. Oh, you can't, in our case, turn on a light switch. There are some Jews today that believe you can't turn a light switch on on a, on a Sabbath, because it's work. And they came up with all these rules as to what it meant to work. Picking grain, walking through a field was too much like harvesting, so therefore it was working, therefore the disciples were violating the law against the Sabbath. And so they again had their book of rules and regulations tied to what it meant to work. Long lists and details of exactly what you could and couldn't do. And they began to teach and preach that God said you can't do these things, so God said you can't eat grain as you walk through the fields. Well, obviously Jesus has a problem with that. Because their oral law had the same weight as the Old Testament law. They spent more time teaching that than they did anything else. But Jesus' defense was this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Look at verses 25 through 27 there. Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. You remember David was fleeing from Saul. He and his men hadn't eaten for a few days. So they come upon this town where there's a priest, there's a small temple, and they had taken the showbread of the bread that had been put out for the Lord. And David was hungry and he said, well, give us something to eat. And so Abathar took that bread that was dedicated to God that should not have been eaten by anyone and gave it to David. God didn't condemn him for it because in some respects it really didn't apply. It was a special circumstance. David and his men needed substance. And it was a good example of... Well, that that law wasn't created to prevent people like David from being fed. And so there was no violation of the law there. And so in some respects Jesus is saying, there's no violation of the law here, gentlemen. Because God didn't create the Sabbath and all your rules to prevent men from eating or receiving what they need. He says in verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God created the Sabbath for our benefit, not His. God doesn't need the Sabbath. It's for our benefit. It's so that we might rest. It's so that we might be able to worship Him. And instead, what the Pharisees had done was they turned it into a law that was ultimately intended to harm man, thinking that it somehow benefited God. And so Jesus said, but it wasn't made that way. God made the Sabbath for man to benefit him. So in other words, he's saying, there's no violation here. They're not working on the Sabbath. They're simply walking through, they're hungry, and God has provided a means for them to do that by picking the grain. So basically, Jesus is once again confronting them for their abuse of the law. The other thing he does here, is in verse 28, he says that he gets to make the rules. Look at verse 28. The son of man is lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is calling out his authority here, folks. As God, I can do whatever I want, which means even though the law says that David should have been put to death for his for the murder of Bathsheba's husband and for his adultery, God had the right to suspend the punishment because David was repentant and remorseful. God can do that. Much like a parent might. I have a rule in my house that you don't do this or this is a consequence. If I see that my child has done it unwillingly or is remorseful or re- I have the right as the parent to not exercise those things. And Jesus is saying I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, it's a declaration as the Son of Man that He is Deity. He's the Son of God. The last confrontation here still fits into this opposition of the Sabbath. It occurs in verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here now you have the Pharisees actually trying to trap Jesus. They're there for one reason only. Let's see what this guy does in the synagogue now. We know, based on his past, somebody's going to come in He's going to want to heal them. And so they're watching him just to catch him doing it. So the man comes in. He's got a withered hand. Verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful? He's talking to the Pharisees. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now what's really interesting about this is the Pharisees had this law. You certainly couldn't help a human being. But if you had a sheep that had fallen into a hole on the Sabbath, you could do whatever needed to be done to rescue that sheep. Wouldn't that be work? Think about that for a moment. If your sheep falls in the hole, wouldn't you rescue it? But yet a man comes in here, how much more valuable to God, and yet... Somehow we can't help him. Isn't there a certain amount of hypocrisy? I was telling Amy this morning, I don't know if you have followed the news lately, but with the passing of the abortion law in New York, where you can basically terminate a pregnancy right up to the moment of labor, you don't have too much outcry except from conservatives, including somebody like Nancy Pelosi. Well, then the other day, the was it the governor of Virginia or West Virginia, made comments about that, alluding to the fact that you could even terminate a baby's life after birth. And the way that he alluded to it was, well, you know, this is a complicated issue, and, you know, if a child is born, then the doctor and the mother have to make certain decisions about that, and you need to make the baby comfortable, alluding to the fact that it would even be permissible to now kill the child after it's been born. Now, he's tried to clarify some things, but it was pretty clear what was in his heart. Well, Nancy Pelosi was asked about that, and she poo-pooed it. Brushed it off. That same governor, the other day, it was discovered that there was a picture in his yearbook of a gentleman or a kid, I won't call him a gentleman, wearing a KKK uniform and then another one standing next to him in blackface. When that came out, all of a sudden now Nancy Pelosi got on her high horse and started to, to condemn him and call him out for the immorality. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? Somehow, when somebody gives the impression that it's okay to murder a baby after it's been born, is not cause for alarm, but wearing blackface 35 years ago, or a KKK uniform 35 years ago, is all of a sudden something to be outraged about. Both of them are horrible, folks, plain and simple. But when they're looking at this, Jesus sees the same type of hypocrisy among the Pharisees. You're willing to rescue a sheep in a pit. You'll work for that. But somehow, some guy comes in here. He can't work because his hand's withered. I heal his hand, and you've got a problem with that? You're a bunch of hypocrites. Absolute hypocrites. Hypocrites. So Jesus asks them, is it lawful? Is it good? Or is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill a life? That is likely his reference to that sheep. And what do they do? They're going to stay quiet. They're not going to answer it. They know they've been trapped. They know they're hypocrites in this case. They're not willing to own up to it. Verse 5, after looking around at them with anger... That's right that Jesus would be angry with them at this point they're the religious leaders of Israel they're there to shepherd the flock Jesus said to them or said to the man stretch out your hand and he stretched that out and his hand was restored and look at the Pharisees response verse 6 the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him they were so enraged. They were so opposed to Jesus that now they would start to plan to kill him. So we have these different instances here where Mark has shown us the opposition that Jesus faced. Remember, he grouped these things together for a purpose and a reason. He's trying to demonstrate to us that Jesus Christ is both Messiah and the Son of God. We saw in these few instances a number of references to the Son of Man where Jesus said, As a Son of Man, I have the right to forgive sins. As a Son of Man, I have the right to do these things. He's declaring himself to be Son of God. But the other part of this, it's not quite so obvious, but the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, not just in his death, burial, and resurrection, but would face opposition from the leadership. It's the exact same pattern we see with the Old Testament prophets. They constantly faced opposition from the leadership of Israel. The prophets would come, and the scribes and the, and, and the others, the religious leaders, would oppose them. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told, they killed the prophets So part of Mark's way of revealing Christ to his readers as the Messiah and as the Son of God is to show that he faced opposition by leadership. The same pattern. Every time God sent a prophet, they faced opposition. So it's interesting because almost one of the keys to identifying those who are on God's side is the opposition they face. Why is it, that the real church, I'll call it that, the real church in the United States is referred to as bigoted, arrogant, proud, chauvinist. We have a lot of churches here. Many of them, however, are praised by culture and society, aren't they? For their approval of things like gay marriage and homosexual rights and however other things. They're liberal. Well, it's interesting because when you stand for Christ or you stand on the side of God, you face opposition. So one of Mark's proofs, if you will, that Jesus Christ was both Son of God and Messiah was to as somebody who was opposed constantly by the leadership in Israel. That's what the Old Testament prophesied. That was the pattern. And then there's one more piece to it. Isn't that what Jesus warned his disciples of? Just as I have faced persecution, just as I will be tortured and put to death, so will you. So will you. I think one of the reasons why the American church, in many respects, has, is, is in the shape that we're in, is we haven't faced the kind of persecution that sharpens us, that makes us realize the difference between us and the world around us. Why is it that the church is exploding in other places where they face constant opposition? You look at some of the Chinese pastors and people that have been arrested in the last year because of China's destruction of churches now, their wholesale affront on the Christian church. And you see some of the remarks that these pastors and people are making in their faith, how strong they are, how encouraged they are, how bold they've become. And so we see that pattern, and so today as we looked at this passage, one of the proofs that Jesus is who he says he is comes because of the opposition that he faced.